Hey, everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of November 12th, 2020. I'm No Film School writer Charles Hain. I'm here with editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. This week, we are going to be talking about the return of COVID and how it is currently affecting film sets and our predictions for the fall. We're going to be doing three quick little tech bites. DaVinci Resolve has an update. There is an update and really cool stuff coming from Sony in the sky. And Teradek has released a autofocus unit for cinema lenses, which is very cool. We are recording before the Apple laptop announcement. So if you're expecting us to be talking about that, we'll be talking about it next week. All that and a deep cuts all about veterans and cinema in celebration of Veterans Day this week on the No Film School podcast. All right, so our top story of discussion this week. First off, before we get to that top story, you know, it, it, I'm not a big man, so I'm going to gloat that uh, I accurately predicted last week that we would not know <laughs> the answer last week. I think a lot of America really wanted answers this week on Tuesday night. My guess is there were not answers on Tuesday night. My guess is that there's a lot of unknown. And, you know, I shouldn't gloat. I should just, like, let it sail out there. But I'm going to gloat, and I'm going to simultaneously share that as I made that prediction, there was a large part of me that was like, this prediction is wrong, and they're going to know it by 8 o'clock tonight. And then everybody on Thursday listening to me is going to be like, you're wrong. But then, luckily, as sometimes happens with predictions, I was correct. We didn't know until Saturday. And and so I feel, you know, we can just, we can just, we can just enjoy that for a moment. I can enjoy that. You guys don't have to. Yeah, let's <laughs> the top top story of the day. Um, but I actually mentioned it to you before we started recording because I was thinking about it all week. Because as we were recording, uh, I was thinking last week. I don't know about that. I feel like they're gonna know, and I was wrong. And you were so right about that all week. I was like, man, Charles really called that. But also, what I do wonder about what I what I do wonder about that is did the filmmakers and freelancers of the audience have an easier time with it? Because I was fine with it. I was like, we're not going to know. We're just not going to know. It's okay. We're just not going to know. It did not freak me out at all because I've lived my whole life freelance and not knowing what's happening uh, is fine. And I wonder if we had an easier time of it. I would be curious. Let us know in the Twitter if you felt like you had an easier time dealing with the unknowing of last week than maybe people in your life who are used to um, having answers faster, like people with like normal lives. Well, I'll put it this way. And I'm, I'm heaping at this point, just heaping praise upon you for this call, but I'll put it to you this way for my part, remembering that you had said that and pointed out that some of us have lived lives in professional uncertainty made me very aware that I am in fact accustomed to this feeling and that I can just ride with it. And it also reminded me that maybe I'm the kind of person who can help spread that awareness to people who are just not comfortable with uncertainty. So I think that uh, there's a case to be made that the No Film School podcast can sometimes offer life advice or uh, input that could really help you and the people around you. I mean, I certainly felt that. I was like, yeah, he made a good point. I mean, I, I know what this is like. I know the drill. I can wait this out. Like, I, I've, I've lived with uncertainty. So... So there you go. Zen and the art of the No Film School podcast. That 
Wow, that feels so great. Thank you so much, George. That was a really nice thing for you to say. Um, on from that nice moment to uh, COVID is resurging around the globe, our top story this week. Um, Continuing so to surge, is, second surge, permanent surge, whatever you want to call it, wave, one big wave that never ends. The only thing I can, you know, the big numbers that I've been looking at this morning are obviously Brooklyn, where I live, we're up to 2.3% of daily tests are coming back positive. We are expecting that as soon as it's 3%, all in-person schooling is going to stop. We're not even at full in-person schooling. It's hybrid in-person schooling. You're only there a couple days a week and it's not everybody. But, uh, you know, the benchmark is when it hits three and it's gone up from, I think, 1.5 to 2.3 in the the last two weeks. So I think we're afraid that if it keeps going this direction, it'll go back up um, to 3%. Hospitalizations are back up. Um, However, New York three or four weeks ago had a cluster in New York that was super hot. It was red, according to the Cuomo system. And uh, we shut a bunch of things down and it is back down. So it is, we do have control measures that work. We do know what we're doing, but this is a film podcast and how is it going to affect filmmaking? Um, You know, the big story just came out this week about Jurassic. Uh, Jurassic World Dominion, I believe is the name, the very long name of the um, movie. And they did 40 thousand covid tests during shooting 40,000 which is crazy now what's also interesting to me and something that I've only been learning about in the last couple months and I'm not a scientist so I'm not going to be uh 100% super um detailed about this but my impression talking from some friends in production who are working as covid safety officers who've worked on productions that have been shut down Um, you know, we're doing enough contract tracing on productions now that often a positive test only results in a department being shut down, not the whole crew being shut down now. Although depending upon the department, like if our department shuts down, that sort of shuts down the whole shoot because you can't shoot without sets. Um, but also what's interesting is that, uh, you know, um, a lot of crews are depending upon a combination of rapid testing and, uh, PCR testing. PCR testing takes longer to process but it's more accurate. So you're reading a lot of, uh, about these protocols where like some people are getting tested every single day with rapid tests where you get your answer in two hours, but the rapid tests have occasional false positives. So a false positive will come out, a department will get shut down while everybody waits on the PCR tests and then they'll be able to restart while the PCRs come in. So it's a complicated situation. I have to say, I mean, The Witcher just shut down for a few days in England. Um, England, France, and Germany, I mean, this isn't just a New York thing, England, France, and Germany are also doing some more shutdowns as uh, cases sort of resurge. Um, A second wave was always predicted. Uh, You know, a second wave has been talked about since, like, March when we first shut down. People talked about how the second wave in 1918 was more deadly than the first wave. So we always knew this was coming. We were hoping we could shut down enough to avoid it, even though there's great vaccine news in the last week. the Pfizer CEO just testified that he he got that news out as soon as he could. He literally didn't get the news until Sunday that they had the successful test for Pfizer. Um, so he wasn't able to release it until Sunday. You know, even that Pfizer vaccine, it's next summer until it's produced enough to really uh, affect big populations. I think that, and this is, again, I'm going to ruin my successful predictive from last <laughs> week. I actually think the film industry, the protocols that have been built over the last six months and the robustness that has been built into it, 
I don't think, even if cases make it to the place where they were last March, and actually, in some cases, we're actually beyond there, um, not in New York. New York is down from March, April, but in other places, it is above and they're still figuring out to shoot. I think we've implemented enough safety protocols that, that productions will likely find a way to continue shooting through it. I don't know that looming shutdowns are coming sort of across the board. But I do think that areas that we're hoping to expand will probably not be able to expand. Like I know anecdotally, New York is shooting a lot more than LA right now. Like New York is packed. Everywhere I go, shoots are back. Steiner Studios is totally full every time I go in the parking lot's overflowing. Like it is in full swing. I think places aren't going to be stuck where they are and are not going to expand anytime soon. Yeah, I have um, a few points to make here. I think that um, there's a few things to keep in mind. We see these, those of us tracking this, we're going to see these numbers that apply to the entire population. You'll see how many cases there are in the country. You'll see how many deaths there are in the country or in the world or like, and it's really hard. And we all learned a little bit about this last week or those of us following politics, the idea of the signal and the noise, like, what is a noisy statistic or how do you apply large numbers to individuals' lives and actions? And I put it in that context because for filmmakers, for anybody, but, but we're talking about the filmmaking community, you may be in a community right now. We're used to thinking about ourselves globally, right? Because of the internet, essentially. Because I'm you know, speaking to you from here and Charles is from there and et cetera. But we are very much right now in our local communities, which is not an idea we are used to. So if you're in a town or city where there isn't a significant number of cases, then maybe being on set right now is a lot safer than the spike in numbers would lead you to believe. Now, the danger of my saying that, of course, is that the spike in numbers happens when people let their guards down and all it takes is one person to show up and la with lax behavior and then suddenly 10 people have it and then, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But what I think is important to keep in mind is that when these spikes, these numbers we're seeing are scary, they're higher than they've been before. Um, but what we need to keep in mind is that when the numbers spiked back in March, we had no protocols in place. In fact, we didn't even know what protocols we should have had in place. We just we're like, uh-oh, <laughs> this is really bad. Now there's um, supply to meet the demand in terms of things like masks. And by the way, you should absolutely use the, uh, what are they called again? N95. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Those are the best masks by far. Fabric masks don't really do a whole lot. Um, also, like, you know, in case you're not aware, like, everyone should wear a mask. It's it's not just enough for you to wear one, but you should be around other people wearing them. But anyway, uh, the the uh, the the hand washing, the understanding how it works with surfaces, the all of this education we have now makes it easier for us to move forward when we do see positive tests or to avoid a whole bunch of them, which is why I agree with you, Charles. I think it's not likely we will see like mass shutdowns. I do know, I can't say like, I can't report on record, but my friends at, at Disney, for example, have told me that they've had many shows reporting cases and had to shut down. But at the same time, there's protocol in place to contact trace, to reopen, to test more rigorously. Like, so again, I just think we're seeing spikes. 
we're going to see a tough winter and the numbers are going to be scary and bad and people will lose their loved ones. But we also know what we're supposed to be doing and we know how to handle it. So I don't think we will need major shutdowns again. But I could also see uh, President-elect Biden having putting certain areas on shutdown until they can bring cases down, which I think would be a good thing. And it might be Los Angeles. I don't know. It might be New York if it spikes there. It's especially frightening to know that like now there's an end goal. Now there's like, okay, there is a vaccine that's 90% effective, which is incredibly effective. Uh, you know, a 99% effective vaccine would be great, but we're not there yet. But it's next summer until it can be widespread. And it still has to be, t- you know, has to go through another, you know, it, it, it's gone through, I think, either phase one or phase two. But, there, you know, there's more trials ahead. Um, so we just have to keep being safe between now and then. And that, you know, it's it's hard to keep being all this safe with no end in sight. But it's also hard yes. to keep being safe with an end in sight. Um, both, I think both, it's worth. They're different situations, but they're for everyone. The news on that vaccine was great, and it was not expected for something to be at that that far along this early. And I'm no immunologist. I don't even pretend to understand these things. But like from what I gather, though, that there are some breakthroughs in how they developed it and how it's working that are exciting for the medical field in general. But there's also um, a treatment that the FDA approved. I think this story came out today, actually, to avoid as many hospitalizations. So the, the silver lining to the horror of this, I think, is that developments keep coming along that will help us mitigate the damage and help us control the outbreak to some extent. And so we do have an endpoint in sight. We are making progress. And, you know... People are going to listen to science, I think, maybe, or at least some people are uh, in the upcoming future. So I'm, I'm encouraged. And I think that we've, we've talked to so many filmmakers. I have, even on this podcast, you can listen to a few of, of the interviews. We had the guys from Just Shoot It on. I had a DP who shot um, Lovecraft Country on. And they both were talking about shooting on big sets or bigger productions during coronavirus and how the precautions are taken. And and it's interesting because even if you're on the indie scale out there, you just want to shoot a small project, you should, you know, listen to those, read some of the stories we have up on the site about, about precautions that are being taken and understand a little bit about what the big shows are doing. Cause I think it'll help you control for infection and stay safe. And that's the thing is we're starting to figure out how to be safe through this and we should keep going. I mean, thank God, you know, one of the beauties of these productions is that they're catching these cases so quickly and we shouldn't slack off on that testing. I mean, if anything, testing should still ramp up even further between now and wide availability of the vaccine. Um, yeah. 40,000 tests. For Jurassic World. I mean, yeah, that I didn't. I didn't even comment on that. It's just crazy. Um, <laughs> but you know, we got to get our dinosaur movie. You know, that's what it well, takes. But also, that actually might seem low to me, because what the crew's going to be 150 people, so that's only 
10 tests would be uh, 1,500. 100 tests would be 15. It's like 300 tests each. I don't know how many. Hmm. I don't know how many shoot days, days there yeah. were. But well, I assume that just like the NBA bubble, which was pretty effective, it was like perfectly effective. The Major League Baseball bubble, which was less so also effective. Yeah. But pretty effective. There were a few cases, I think, but it was still pretty effective. And I, I have a friend who's a trial attorney who had to travel for for a trial, and he's in a bubble for that case, and that's been effective. Like even anecdotally, like when you bubble people, you don't need as many tests, right? Because, because you're bubbled. So like, who are they interacting right? with? So like, right, the people who've been testing negative. So maintenance, it's like maintenance testing. We're like, but I, I mean, we have a blueprint, right? Like, I mean, we have a blueprint for how to do this um, and it works. Yet again, we can learn about safety from Jurassic Park. All right, <laughs> moving on. This week, we've got three little tech news bites. I'm going to do them in, in, in order of information from, from least information to most information. Least information we have right now. Sony has officially announced with AirPeak, they're going to be doing a video focused drone. So that's all we know. So there's not a ton to talk about, but it is news that people should know about. Um, my guiding principle with tech news is always like, not that this happens in the, the realm of Zoom, but like, what are the things people are going to be chatting about when you're like shooting the shit with random people you meet on set or you're, you're stopping by an office for a general meeting? Like, what are the tech things people should know? And like Sony getting into drones certainly seems like a conversation piece that's going to be around. We don't know a lot. What we do know is that AI is a big part of their announcement and that they're going to be bringing, um, you know, all of the Sony resources into the video drone space. They already have some collaborations in industrial uh, drones with other drone makers, but there's no collaborative partner here. So they're going to be doing it themselves. A lot of times with drones and stabilizer technology, you see partnerships like, you know, initially when Steadicam brought in some stabilizer technology, uh, they originally partnered with Unique for that. Um, I think they do it all in-house now. And, you know, drone technology requires a lot of very specific domain knowledge. And so it makes sense that they've traditionally partnered with others. But this is going to be Sony's moving into drones all on their lonesome. Now, why is this fascinating? So DJI owns this space. DJI owns this space with a with a level of ownership that's just, you know, Parrot makes cool, weird stuff. Unique makes cool, weird stuff. But you're, if you're getting a drone, you're you're looking at the DJI product lineup like that. That they are so dominant right now. And other people that you would think would be able to make moves like GoPro, who who owns the action camera space. GoPro tried to move in, and uh, their drone was so bad they stopped making it within months because uh, it kept falling out of the sky. Because drones are hard. <laughs> and, um, you know, DJI has the benefit of when they started, they were small and people weren't paying a lot of attention and they had years to build up expertise and, and really have the knowledge. And it's, drones are one of those areas that is really hard to move into in a way where it makes sense for Sony. You know what I mean? Like DJI had years where people didn't really know who they were. And if things fell out of their sky, it was first adopters who were still like new to the process, who were probably a lot more forgiving. Drones are now a mature market, and Sony's only going to be interested in markets where there's enough volume for them to make it worthwhile. So they're going to need to make a splash and make a real volume seller. 
which means people aren't going to be super forgiving if it falls out of the sky or if there are other drawbacks or flaws. So it says a lot about Sony's confidence that they are going to be able to build something that is a legitimate DJI competitor. We don't know at what price point. We don't know if it's competing with the Inspire or with the Mavic. Um, you know, the Inspire is like the three thousand to four thousand dollar with interchangeable lenses. The Mavic is the like thousand dollar, but still amazing, but fixed lens um, line. Those are the two lines that are sort of most popular with indie filmmakers. Uh, we don't know which one they're going to be targeting. I know that they're going to target one of those two. That's what my gut is telling me. Um, and obviously, in terms of image quality, it's Sony. It's going to be something that intercuts well with the A7S III. But in terms of like staying in the sky and not crashing into stuff, it'll be really interesting to see if they can, from the start, roll out that level of technology. Because that's the thing, is if they're going to walk into a new market, they're going to be competing with people who've been doing it for 10 years and have spent 10 years developing. Um, a very sophisticated tool set. Um, I'm honestly, I'm split. I don't, I don't have a prediction here. If Sony pulls it off, won't be surprised because Sony pulls stuff off. If Sony does this for a year and pulls out, won't be surprised because drones are hard. That's what happened to GoPro. And like Sony's been trying to make an action cam happen forever. I don't know anybody who shoots their action cam. You know, Sony does not win every battle they go to. They win a lot of battles but they don't win every one. So I'm, you know, I'm curious. I can't wait to see what they bring to the table. What do you think? Uh, is there any sense, there's no sense of what the quality of the video, any specs on that at all? Or is there? Well, well there isn't. There's nothing. There's literally a sizzle trailer, which is the word air peak and some like black on black imagery. And that's it. Um, yeah. So we know nothing. They've just officially announced that in the spring, they're going to announce their drone. They've announced their announcement. Um, and it's a little meta. One interesting area where they do have the offer is like, you know, they make every sensor. They don't actually make DJI's sensors. They might now, I haven't checked on this in a couple of years, but last I checked a couple of years ago, uh, DJI, uh, sourced their sensors from someone else, but you know, all, you know, there's only a few big sensor makers. Sony makes so many sensors in all of the smartphones, in all of the, you know, uh, Fuji, all of their sensors made by Sony. Uh, Canon makes their own sensors. I can't remember if Nikon does or if Nikon buys Sony sensors. They make a lot of sensors. So because they make a lot of sensors, there's the ability where they could design and make in-house for very cheap a sensor that's really good at drone work. So like global shutter, amazing low light, sort of custom fabbit at a price point that makes sense for them. And blow everybody else out of the water. So, like, you know, would I be surprised if Sony came out with a, like, 8K global shutter drone camera? I would not be surprised at all. Like, all of the impossible specs no one else could afford to make. Could Sony figure out a way to do it? Sure, I bet Sony could figure out a way to do it. Like, they're Sony. They own that. Um, now, will it, will it not crash is the thing that we don't know. Because, you know, that's, that's the key with drones. It's, it's both. It's a beautiful camera and it's got to fly around smoothly. And that's, you know, that's what's going to be really yeah. interesting about this. Um, but no, we got we have zero specs. We just know its name is AirPeak. Next up in tech news, <laughs> there's, um, there's more info about this. Uh, in fact, all of the info is out about this, but there's just not as much info as our last tech news. Teradex TOF1 is a focal plane distance measurement unit. From Teradek. So Teradek also 
Teradek is part of Creative Solutions, the big, you know, um, mega company that owns small HD and Vitech and all sorts of stuff. Um, they're very, they do a lot of really cool stuff and they do some nice integrations between all of the accessories. They bought RT, which uh, makes follow focus units, uh, a really nice wallet, wireless follow focus unit. And now they have come out with a rangefinder unit, which is a, uh, basically an infrared sensor for sensing distance with a three degree field of view and a 60 frame per second refresh rate that can measure distance up to 80 feet away for your subject. There's even a little laser sight in it that you can point at something and it will tell you how far it is away. And then the distance reading will come up on your follow focus unit, or if you're using a small HD monitor, it'll come up on your monitor. So if you're doing, you know, if you're doing a really complicated shot, like let's say you're doing a shot, there's a beautiful shot that I always think of when I think of it, this in Born Ultimatum, where they're on like a hundred millimeter lens and this car is like racing right at the camera and they hold it in focus. I'm sure they did a couple takes. It's really hard. That kind of shot gets way easier with something like this, because not only do you get a readout telling you how far away you are from the subject, you also can turn on autofocus, which is something that most cinema lenses don't do. You know, you think about autofocus on a Canon C70, you're going to get beautiful autofocus or the C300 Mark II. But a cinema lens, usually there's not even a motor built into the lens and you're using an external motor for follow focus. So this is a way to get autofocus on a cinema lens system. Um, C-Motion has had a similar thing around for about a decade that, you know, they show off at all of the trade shows and is pretty cool, but isn't, it's never quite as cool as you want it to be. My guess is that this is going to be very similar to some competitors where like, it's not going to be as amazing on people's faces because, you know, the rangefinder might be pointing at the nose and that's three inches in front of the eyes. And some, and you usually want the focus on the eyes, not the nose. So it's not, you know, super close ups on faces. You're still going to need that amazing first AC where this is going to be great is, you know, skiers, um, where they're far enough away that the depth of field is big enough where it's the whole person and they're skiing really fast, car buys, stuff like that, where it's really hard to nail that focus, but the object's big enough that a rangefinder can usually grab it pretty easily. That's my guess where this is going to be really useful and interesting. But it's also just really nice that the whole data flow through is there that, you know, if I have a small HD monitor, it's going to tell me how far I, like it's going to show up on the small HD monitor as a data display. And I think that's the really interesting thing here is that you're starting to see, you know, the last couple of years have been all about the integrations to make life easier. Like a rangefinder is not new. They've been around for a while. There was a Cinetape, I think 15 years ago. Um, but now it's the data from the rangefinder flows through to your monitor. So you can see it there. Um, I mean, theoretically, they'll figure out a way to even record it for metadata so that you can use that metadata in VFX so that, you know, you, if, so that your VFX team knows how far away objects are. If they're trying to recreate effects on that person or something, you can plug that into your VFX pipeline. So that's what's cool about this for me. That's what makes the TOF1 sort of an interesting development from Teradek is the, is the data flow through. Interesting. It's a pretty expensive piece of machinery. Like this is- It is $3,500, yeah. Yeah, this is a high level. This is like a special tool. This is a rental item for most of us. I've never owned a Cinetape. I've rented a Cinetape. I've never owned one. You'll see some first ACs who buy this kind of stuff. You'll definitely see some first ACs who are like, you know, if that is all they do and they do a lot of that kind of work and they, they feel like they can rent it to the productions they're on, this is something where some first ACs might buy it. But 
yeah, it's definitely not something that your average DP ever ends up buying. Um, it's more of a like, I'm a first AC tool or a rental item for a specific job. You know, I did a job once where we shot a lot on a thousand millimeter lens. And, you know, when you're on a thousand millimeter lens, your depth of field is very small. Our close focus was 50 feet away. Um, right. And so, you know, we were doing these scenes where people were running from like a thousand feet away to 50 feet away. And, you know, we figured out a whole thing with cones and spotters and stuff to keep it in focus. But that would have been even easier with something like this. Um, although, you know, it only works to about 80 feet away. So this is probably not good on a thousand foot millimeter lens. But like you're doing a 250 millimeter lens shot, which is, you know, one of those nice 70s compressed vision shots. This will probably be really helpful for that kind of thing. So it's a special purpose tool to make it easier to do crazy shots. But sometimes you want to do a crazy cool. shot. Yeah. All right. So our last bit of tech news for the week is DaVinci Resolve 17 is here. So if you guys don't know DaVinci Resolve, I mean, I think most of our listeners do, but it is a color grading, sound design, visual effects, and editing software all in one. It is free, or you can pay $300 for an upgrade to a studio license, and uh, you get a, a few extra features with the studio license, and they've just updated from 16 to 17 with a bunch of cool new features. Now, the list is way too long to go into all of them, but I'm going to mention a couple, and I'm going to save my biggest one for last. So one of the nice things they did is they improved a whole lot of the features in the color page, which to be honest, I mean, Resolve started as a color grading platform. That was all it used to do. It just did color grading. And I, I was a full-time colorist when it was very dominant. I learned um, originally on DaVinci 888, and then I moved over to Resolve. And um, it was very, very, very good. But in the last three or four revisions, there haven't been a lot of updates to the color room because they've been working on the sound design space and the edit space and, and all of that. And this one was a real big set of updates for like better tools for color grading HDR. HDR is high dynamic range imagery where we're talking about the range from brightness to darkness and more TVs have HDR. HDR is really a very common, you know, Netflix a couple of years ago said everything has to be delivered HDR now. So, which surprised a lot of DPs working on Netflix shows. So you get much better HDR tools. You get a whole bunch and even better, you get a um, neural network driven selection tool. So this is actually like something that I think we're going to see a lot more develop on in the next couple of years. But one of the things you're frequently doing in color grading is you're like, oh, I want to select that person. I want to make that person brighter and the rest of the scene darker so they pop out. Happens all the time. You know, it's not uncommon in a commercial if I have five people in the shot. Every single one of them has a shape drawn around them so I can individually make them have a little more contrast or separate their skin tones or whatever. Really common. They've now added an automatic selector using a neural network, which is designed to identify people. So, you know, you can, if it's not perfect, you can go in and tweak it. You can also point at people and be like, select that person for me. This is huge. This is, <laughs> this is like, this is like such a time saver. I can't tell you the number of times I've spent like an hour of my life tracking five people in a shot because the skin tones weren't quite right or because we wanted to make them pop and stuff. Like, you know, especially you're working on a music video and you want to make the star look right. You're working in commercials, beauty, cosmetics. Like adding that is like such a huge, huge thing. Um, now, it's the first generation for this. So I imagine it will get better over time. But 
even bringing that in is such a nice, amazing feature. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of other sort of how, how how good is it? How does it, how how does it work? Have you have you seen I've, it yet? I have not tested it yet. This literally just came out yesterday, and I was not able to download it this morning. But you can test it all now. It is all available for right free. now for free. <laughs> uh, you can go download uh, 17 beta right now. Now, whenever there's a beta out, I always like to remind people: don't 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 update the beta if you're in the middle of an important project. Finish whatever you are working on, deliver whatever you need to deliver, and then update the beta. Beta is never as stable as a you know 16.3 is now out and is the stable one. So if you're if you just want to play with Resolve, use 16.3. Um, there's also a few tricks where you can have both installed. Like I have, um, when I install it, I will have both 16.3 and I will have 17 beta installed, um, which is you just rename it in the applications folder. You rename one in the applications folder before you install the other one um, because you can never want you, to update Can I ask the you about a couple beta. other black magic things that are related? Sure. So the, da Vinci, the new DaVinci Resolve Speed Editor and the that fair like the desktop thing, yeah. console. Oh, okay. So I want to yeah. know about, I guess, what's new in these, but I guess you were going to get to that. Yeah. So they also came out with new hardware. So the vast majority of us spend most of our careers working without special hardware, right? Most editors use a mouse and a keyboard and are able to interact with their product. Lightworks always had like a dedicated hardware interface. And in color grading, we've always had dedicated hardware interfaces where you can go in and you can spin the, the wheels and the knobs and you can color grade faster. And hardware interfaces are really great because they allow you often to do things faster because you're, you're not looking down, you're not clicking around with the mouse, you're only looking, the goal is you always wanna be in a place where you're just looking at your image and manipulating your image, whether it's the timeline or the editor, or whatever, and you don't have to keep looking down at the interface, that's the dream. So. They've always had great color interfaces. And for Fairlight, their sound tool, they've always had these big, epic sound interfaces. But even though Fairlight's been out for a couple of years, we've all been sort of waiting, wondering, like, when are you going to have, like, a $3,000 audio interface, like a desktop thing that will allow mixing some basic tracks and, and doing some basic EQ, but it's not the full $30,000, you know, studio install. And they finally came out with it. It's 3500 bucks, which seems like a lot, but for what it offers, it's actually probably fair. And it allows you to do real-time mixing and real-time EQ and all of those things when working in your sound design in Fairlight. On top of that, they're also throwing in, and um, they also came out with what they're calling a speed editor, which is a little mini keyboard that is just designed to make your editing faster. That's all it is. It is just an editing keyboard, but it's designed not to replace your current keyboard. A year ago, they came out with the editor keyboard, which I think no right. one probably bought. Because it was a thousand dollars, and I think—I mean, I've just not seen them in the field. I just don't think it was a hit. I think people are too picky about keyboards now. I think that would have been a hit twenty years ago. Um, so they came up with it, one that's designed to sit next to your keyboard or in front of your keyboard, and it's just a bunch of quick edit keys and a jog wheel to make editing faster. And honestly, first off, if you buy Studio right now, they're giving it away free if you buy Studio. So if you buy Studio for two and ninety-five, you get this edit keyboard. Um, although they say that's a short time offer, but even still, once it's out, it'll still be very affordable. And uh, I think that will actually take off because I think that everyone would like to edit faster. 
And there is a real beauty to like, I'm just going to look at my picture and because I know where the keys are and I've memorized it and I never have to look at the interface, I will be able to work more quickly because of it. If people legitimately are able to speed up their workflow, I think that there's a real possibility there that that could be really cool. So it's, it's, oh, go ahead. Yeah. I just want to say about it. So it's, it's like, it's presented as, as it's going to make you work faster. I wonder yes. how much are people fast already doing things the way they are with their mouse and keyboard, their regular QWERTY keyboard and adjusting to a new thing? How long? I mean, even though we're familiar, most editors will be familiar with the functionalities and stuff. Do you think it'll slow people down before it speeds them up a little bit? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I regularly teach colorists when I'm teaching who spent like a whole year of their life learning to color without a color panel. And the first day they play with a color panel, they're slower because they're like, oh, but I've gotten used to doing without a color panel. I know how to do it all without it. And then they sit at the color panel and they keep forgetting to use the color panel and putting their hands back on the keyboard. But by the second day, especially because the color panel speeds you up so much, by the second day, you're just on the color panel full time and you're not even thinking about it. Um, so I think that there will be some speed ups there. Um, but I, yeah, oh, totally. The first day, when anytime you're switching workflow is so weird because you're so used to using certain keys and moving to other keys is always a bit tricky. So yeah, it'll be, it'll be a move over. Um, I think the Fairlight panel is the little sneaker here. I mean, I think that because it's so affordable, it's going to get a lot of the press, but like finally having a $3,500 Fairlight panel is actually a really nice and appreciated um, feature. It's something I think we've all been waiting on from Fairlight for a couple of years now to give us like that, you know, cause there's nothing quite like being able to mix while listening to playback actively. And you really need a panel to do that. Um, clicking around, making noise with the mouse, making noise with the keyboard, trying to affect things on a track while listening is not, is never as good. The last thing they did is they made collaboration free. So people always ask like, what are the big things you get when you upgrade to studio? And there's a few things you still get, you get better plugins and you get some nice noise correction. But the thing that, always made it worth it to me was you get these collaboration tools that make it easier for multiple users to work together. However, Resolve has noticed that, you know, people are no longer working together in their offices. They're now working together remotely over the internet. And so they built a few tools to make it easier to do that. They made a way, a much easier way to share media and timelines, which is really slick. But they also made all of their collaboration tools free, which like is very... Like at this point, you're just paying for studio for for noise correction. Now, granted, a good noise corrector is worth $300. Like a good noise corrector is great. And a DaVinci Resolve noise corrector is wonderful. So it's worth the $300 for noise correction. But like the free tool is getting really, really good if all of the collaboration tools are now free, which is nuts. Blackmagic has a good business where they make enough selling hardware that they can get really aggressive with Resolve for free in software. And uh, that model seems to be working for them. It just seems like a, like even if you love whatever editing software you use, I'm not a pitchman for anybody. Obviously, <laughs> that would be. But I, but I just keep thinking, like, why not also learn Resolve? Like, it's there. It's free. Like, you can get great with it and have it and use it as a tool. And, and I mean, I know the reason. It, like, I wouldn't. I mean, it's time to dedicate to learning something. But it's just. It's a great tool that's available to everybody. So it's kind of awesome. We love that at No Film School. Things like that. Yeah. 
I mean, I always say if you want to work in post, you need to know Media Composer, Resolve, Premiere, and Final Cut. Like you should be a you should be ready to sit down at any system. But if you are just if you're not going to work in post, yeah, omnivorous is a great way to put it. But if you're not going to work in post, if you're like, no, I'm I work mostly on set. I'm a DP. I'm a DIT. I'm you know I'm I just want to be a director. You only really need to learn one. And there's reasons to pick any of the four, but the combination of free and the relentless upgrade cycle of really exciting features make Resolve an appealing option for that one. Especially, I mean, one thing I've started to notice is what happens is, you know, a lot of people are starting to, as one of their friends moves to Resolve, because it's free, it's easier for them to convert their other friends who aren't paying for anything to learn that. And then all of a sudden you have a group of people who are able to collaborate on the free software. And so even mm. if you're still like holding out as like, I'm a premier person, the fact that you can't collaborate as easily um, makes it more and more tempting to give up that monthly payment. So that is a thing. That's I'm an interesting idea is like you're, you're, you know, you're doing a small project with your crew, you know, you got a little group of people you're working on projects with. If you're all just downloading the free resolve software and using it then you can all kind of trade back and forth projects and you know there's no uh requirement for everyone to own something expensive or for one person to do the the work yeah yeah um alrighty and then last this week uh we're gonna do deep cuts it's veterans day this week so we wanted to talk about veterans and cinema um and sort of war movies and and whatnot and so I wanted to do a deep cut that I I forgot would have been a deep cut. First off, I want to shout out to two great movies, both sort of influenced by Ron Kovic that are worth a watch. Coming Home and Born on the Fourth of July. Born on the Fourth of July, like an official biopic of Ron Kovic. Um, Coming Home, sort of a tangential, like, you know, inspired by uh, his friendship with um, Jane Fonda. But both of them are great. Take a look. Hal Ashby's wonderful. Born on the Fourth July is like a solid Oliver Stone film, but that's neither of those are going to be my deep cut. Those were just things I considered on the list. I think everybody should give a watch to a movie called The Best Years of Our Lives. Um, it is three and a half hours, which <laughs> used to intimidate people, but literally, if you just watched 12 hours of Ted Lasso, or if you just watched 18 hours of Game of Thrones... Like, there's a pandemic. It's a lockdown. I don't need to hear that a three-and-a-half-hour movie is too long. Uh, Howard Hawks, 1948. It's the last movie shot by Greg Toland, or the last big movie shot by Greg Toland before he, unfortunately, died of a heart attack very young. Greg Toland, great DP, obviously one famous for long. Yeah, one great. of the great. Uh, shot uh, Life of a Hollywood Extra, shot The Long Voyage Home, shot, um, obviously, Citizen Kane is, you know, burying the lead there. So the last years, of our, the best years of our lives, based on an epic poem. So the screenwriter originally wrote the script not as a screenplay, but as an epic poem. Was like, you know what? I am so expired. I'm going to write this in verse, and then we're going to rewrite it as a script. Um, and it's just about veterans coming home from World War II. And like, look, coming home, born on the fourth of July, veterans coming home from Vietnam, very very interesting movies and there's certainly great movies about the veteran experience from more recent wars but this one's really interesting because it's a acknowledgement that even for every war since world war ii has some moral complication 
where they're but like there's just a moral simplicity to World War II. Nazis bad, killing Nazis good. Like it is the simplest of the wars, and as a war needs the least. Like every veterans movie about Vietnam and Iraq has to deal simultaneously with the veterans experience and the moral experience and the moral conflict about the battle fought. This is a movie about there is no moral complications about the battle we fought. We are all confident we did the right thing as a country. This was the move kill Nazis, but yet (laughs) being a veteran is still difficult and dealing with the repercussions of the sacrifice is still hard. And uh, one of the actors in it was a, a veteran who had lost both his hands and he was discovered because he was doing training films about life without hands. And uh, he was in that and uh, some people in Hollywood saw it and he was cast in the role. It was the only role he ever performed. And uh, he won two Oscars for it, uh, for that one role. It's the only time anyone got two Oscars for one role because he was nominated. Then they gave him an honorary Oscar because they didn't think he would win. And then he won. So he got two Oscars for one role, which is amazing. Crazy. Um, yeah, uh, best years of our lives. Such a one of those movies that, like, when I, when someone first told me to watch it, they were like, three and a half hour movie," and I was like, "And you know, I was like, ah, oh, three and a half hour," and like, it's just good. It's just a good, solid movie. Um, it is set. I forget if they actually call it Cincinnati or if it's just strongly implied to be Cincinnati, but it's all shot in L.A. And if you know L.A., you're like. They do a reasonably good job of making it look like Cincinnati, but then there's scenes where you're like, no, that's Beverly Boulevard. That's not Cincinnati. What are you doing? Um, but it's, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's so, it's such a, I think as we, as we celebrate veterans and the sacrifices they make and the difficult transitions that are involved uh, this week, I think that is a really good deep cut. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I hope people stuck around for the deep cuts this week. I mean, always, but because I have a few too, those are great. And I think, you know, when we talk about patriotism and the country right now and Veterans Day, there's a lot of significant things and and maybe stuff that'll spur some creative inspiration. Um, I have a few. So first, I just want to mention that there are like, people may not always know this, but there are a lot of very celebrated veterans who are in cinema, like Jimmy Stewart, flew like 20 combat missions, I think. Henry Fonda famously said something like, I'd rather serve in the real war than in the studio fake war or something. Um, so, and a lot of directors, if you if you haven't read Five Came Back or seen the, doc, uh, the film made out of it, um, which I think is on Netflix, it's a great insight into the industry in the 30s and 40s and these five directors who went abroad to shoot film about the war for the for the u.s defense department so some of it I was mean, like propaganda. Could, I, could, I, could i interrupt and say yeah. also point out let us also not forget sam fuller who enlisted i think he was 40 when world war ii yes. broke out and enlisted and like at like 42 was part of the landing party in normandy um, That's right. So, I always forget that about him. He's, by the way, filmmaker fans. If you don't know Sam Fuller and haven't watched his movies, I feel like read he his goes autobiography. through these, Right. I feel like he goes through these ebbs and flows. He's one of the most. Just him writing and talking about movies makes you want to go out and make movies. I don't know how else to put it. Um, but so there's a movie called Let There Be Light 
from 1946, which was made by John Huston, who is a legend uh, writer-director. So the movie was actually buried by by the U.S. Army because it's a documentary about PTSD or shell shock. And it's pretty shocking stuff, no pun intended. Uh, and it, uh, was, it was only really released in 1980. Um, it is now in the uh, United States National Film Registry. Uh, and Paul Thomas Anderson used it for inspiration on the master. There's some elements and themes. That's how I actually found out about it. Um, I think it's more interesting than The Master, which is an interesting movie. That's just my opinion. But it's it's a real window into like, yeah, night, uh, World War II was black and white. Um, but some of our troops came back with some serious problems, as they always do from war. And I think that the movie does a great job showing you the reality. All those guys, John Ford, John Houston, I forget the other, William Wyler, I think was one of them. They had a whole different perspective after that um experience and the other one i'll quickly mention that people are less familiar with is a movie called the americanization of emily from 1964 um written by the great patty chayefsky and directed by arthur hiller patty chayefsky is like the best uh it's james garner and julie andrews and the thing about this movie is it's about the idea of cowardice and whether or not cowardice sort of makes sense um, and I don't want to oversell or overpitch what the movie is, but it's about a guy who's sort of like using his position in the army to avoid fighting and to just live the good life abroad. And it's funny and light. And then it gets very serious. And like anything by Paddy Chayefsky, it's extremely sharp and impactful and, and taut. And, and even if you don't watch it, you can get a hold of a copy of it and read it because Patty Chayefsky is just the best screenwriter of all time. And no one's going to ever convince me otherwise. So always, if you care about writing, read Patty Chayefsky scripts. So I love Patty Chayefsky. I enjoy Patty Chayefsky. But I haven't seen this one. And I have a question based on my affection for I enjoy Network, although Network doesn't read the same way today that it read in the 90s when I first watched it because so much of what it was presenting as extreme is now what just life is like. like oh, it's it's so crazy. What it presented as extreme has become tame. So it doesn't, oh, yeah. it, 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 it was, that movie is prophetic, but it's almost problematic now because like he got in trouble at the time. People were like, that's absurd. That's so absurd. We can't take this movie seriously. But now we have this opposite problem with that movie where we're like, Oh yeah, we blew through that like decades ago. Yeah. Oh god. Yeah. You watch Network now, and you're like, oh, what a quaint age. But also, <laughs> the hospital and Network simultaneously are both driven by these like affairs between middle-aged men and younger women that like yeah. are so similar. And I was wondering, does the Americanization of Emily have the same thing? Is it a trifecta of his like middle-aged men cheating on their wife with young women thing? No. It's a. It's it's kind of a love story. At its heart, at its core, between two similarly aged young people. So it's oh, not, there we go. So, so, and it's actually like I think if you read his, so his big thing was writing. He wrote a lot of TV drama, which was a thing in the fifties. That's where he he was a veteran as well, by the way. Um, and he wrote a lot of like kind of hour long TV drama was a big thing at the beginning of television. And his scripts for those, so like Marty is was it was expanded. Uh, a feature film that expanded out of one of those 
I think he had one called Bachelor Party that was a feature film expanded. But those scripts are so good and tight dramatically. And he covers all kinds of things. I think that that similarity between a hospital and network have more to do with him and his own waning. Those were like his the end of the line for him, really. Um, yeah. When he was kind of going off the rails. Structurally, his early TV scripts or teleplays are so perfect and like and about all kinds of topics but always and the thing that i love about even the way he handles a war movie like the americanization of emily is that he kind of stays away from the bombastic stuff because he doesn't need that for drama he can create drama just in like humans being human and there's no need for any external major i mean there's a war going on in that but the, the stakes are are so i just think there's a lot you can get if you're interested in in writing and screenwriting is your thing um it's it's just a well done well done little story and yeah it's not as it doesn't get into the weird stuff about affairs and uh, men kind of trying to regain their youth which i think those other movies do which is a fair topic. It's just like it's so similar in the hospital and network. Like, like that's a you can make a movie about affair, fine. But like, they're the movies are like two years apart, and the affairs are like so similar in their dynamic that I was like, it just seemed. To, I was like, Patty, come on, you got more variety than you. Yeah, I think he. I personally, I kind of feel like network was like was like an evolution of that of the hospital. If you haven't seen the hospital and network, obviously, folks. Highly recommend, but the hospital is like kind of a, it almost feels like a rough draft on what he was going to gunning for when he got, I think he was, yeah, yeah, that's my take at least. I like that take. I'm going to, I'm going to keep that take in my heart. Um, (laughs) All right, let's wrap it up and plug our pluggables. Uh, I'm Charles Hain. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Charles Hain, H-A-I-N-E. And uh, you can check out my work at charleshain.com. Check out my web series, saltypirate.tv, which I am soon to stop plugging, but not yet. And I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. Thanks so much for listening. Please, as always, ask any questions or send any comments to ask at nofilmschool.com. Be sure to check us out on Facebook. No Film School is the name of the page. Like us. Follow us on Twitter at No Film School. Uh, Head over to the website. Read about all these stories and a whole lot more. Plus, listen to our other podcast episodes. The podcast is on Megaphone. Like, rate, and subscribe. Leave comments. Those really help us out a lot. Um, There's a lot of cool interviews. I always say this, but uh, just the other day, we put up an interview with cinematographer Maddie Libatique, who shoots for Darren Aronofsky. And he's had a crazy ride, and he has a lot of cool stories, and he's like, He's just a badass. Like, I don't know how else to put it. Um, And he's just like his stories about shooting pie in the streets of New York and all the things that those guys have done together and and why they do it. And and it's all because of the anniversary of um, Requiem for a Dream, which is like a landmark movie. Um, So they remastered it. He talks about that. And he even mentions that he took a peek at Roger Deakins's LUT when he was in the post house. He had to kind of finagle his way into that. But anyway, very cool interview. He's the best. Um, and thank you all for listening. <laughs> <laughs>